Welcome to the Understanding Jesus Podcast. I'm Pastor Troy Richards, and Josh Humphreys is with me. Hey, everybody. Hey, Josh. And with us, a very, very special guest, Jonathan Troy Richards. Thank you so much. This is Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan is the youth pastor at Russell Springs Baptist Church in Russell Springs, Kentucky, and wearing a Kentucky Wildcats shirt to boot. And, Josh and Troy, blue. who else is Jonathan Richards? Who else is he? He's not just a youth pastor. He's also someone in... my, oh my son. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you didn't mention that. There, yeah, that's John. a big one. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take ownership over yes. that one. <laughs> he is he is the fourth of four children. But um, anyway, with uh, the dream child, the special one, the oh. anointed, uh, <laughs> the you. chosen. You are the chosen one. I have two sons in ministry. I'm very proud of that. And so, in fact, we've talked about this before for the first time ever, all three of us, because Josh stepped out of our youth ministry <laughs> and I stepped in this place to cover the youth ministry at our church. So now, currently, all three Richards men are doing youth ministry wow. simultaneously in three different churches. And loving so, it, according to recent studies. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to, sure, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. I'm, I will be grateful when we have someone to do it. <laughs> anyway, so today's so anyway, podcast, So today's Troy. podcast is, is a lot of fun. We are, we are talking, we're looking at the children of Israel, trying to figure out why all the Levites killed all those people and answering that question and, and why was that okay. Uh, also, we are dealing with uh, the particulars of the tabernacle we're looking at matthew 24 and 26 looking at all the things that are unfolding uh in the last days of christ and and his parables and so forth and uh, josh takes a look at proverbs 7 and kind of unfolds it for us so lots of good stuff so stay with us right here on the understanding jesus podcast We are back on the Understanding Jesus podcast. Thank you all for joining us. And we have Jonathan and Josh and me, and we are getting ready to unfold what uh, scripture passages have stood out to us. And I am going to share from Psalm 19. Um, it says the instruction of uh, this is Psalm 19, verse starting with verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your, in addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, your servant from willful sins, do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Wow. And and, and this is what um, the psalmist is talking about, something that I think is um, unintentional sins and intentional sins because there was a there was a sacrifice that the hebrews made that was to cover unintentional sins and so forth uh and and then uh but here you have the psalmist and i remember when i used to read that i think yeah but what about the sins i so what happens if i actually do something and i know i'm doing something wrong because i i hope i'm not alone in saying i'm the only person in the world who actually thought 
I shouldn't do this, but I did it anyway. And uh, and have you ever, uh, I just want um, will you join in that? Many, many, <laughs> okay. many times. Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> of course, my son's never done anything know. like that. But, <laughs> the, um, but, uh, but anyway, I, I, when we're hungry and we give in to that hunger, and it's like I know I, uh, I shouldn't eat. Yeah, I always talk about Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, how you see them. It's like <laughs> I shouldn't have another Krispy Kreme, but it's there, and I really want it, and I'm really hungry. And then you eat it, and then it's like, and, you know, when we are really, really hungry, and we give in to that hunger, there is no sense of the consequences of that decision. There's no sense mm-hmm. of all the ramifications of why I did that. We're not thinking about weight gain. We're not thinking about diabetes. We're not thinking about anything harmful to us. We're just thinking, I need to satisfy this craving. And and I think that's why fasting is such a powerful spiritual discipline, because it's really one of the base desires that we have. And and you think of Jesus who went 40 days without food. And, and of course, you have Moses and Elijah also 40 days without food. Moses, a supernatural fast because he went without food and water, which mm-hmm. is not physically possible. So God preserved him. Um, but uh, but Jesus, you know, when he's baptized, he goes out into the wilderness. He's fast. He fasts for 40 days. Uh, and and it's, it's a discipline to show that I will not be governed by these physical cravings. Mm-hmm. And if you can overcome the physical craving of hunger, you can pretty much master any other physical craving uh, you might have. And, and that's, that's why it's such a powerful discipline to build into our lives. Uh, if you can't do it, it's a sign that you are not relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. But uh, but anyway, we we give into these appetites and, and we lose all discretion and and then we're not thinking of our health, we're not thinking of our future, we're not thinking of the needs of others. We're only seeking to satisfy ourselves, and it will drive a man to steal. It will drive a man to lie. It will drive a man to kill if he doesn't get a hold of that those those cravings and those desires to satisfy ourselves. Um, Jesus said. When we fast, that we are to do so in such a way that we do not draw attention to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not only that we are to uh, to deny ourselves this, we're not to let anybody know that we're denying ourselves these things in our life. And we're to act as though they don't bother. When you think at that level, uh, if you've never fasted before, I remember reading a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, and he was talking about the discipline of fasting and how fasting three days, five days, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, that uh, we uh, we think when you think about that, you um, um, it is a um, it is a it's something that was so um, I couldn't fathom it. I was like three days without food. What the? That's crazy. Uh, and so then I prayed and asked God to give me the strength to do it. So I did engage and then went to a five day fast and then a seven day fast. And I don't, I don't remember the longest fast I've ever done. I think it's not much more than a week, but, um, but I knew people that had done 40 day fast and, and that's something you should do with medical counsel. But, <laughs> but the, um, but the idea is this, that, um, uh, that you have a, um, hold on. When we master our appetites with self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is magnified. And so it is. it really is a matter of us taking, a, a, relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to gain control of our appetites. So anyway, that's Psalm 19. Jonathan. Yes. What do you have? 
So I'm speaking out of a scripture of Exodus uh, chapter 32. If you all are with us right now, uh, we can turn to Exodus chapter 32 and go into verse 15. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writings was the writings of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of sing, singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. First of all, the drinking of powder of, of this metal that was burned seems very... Uh, that's, a, that's an intense thing to do, and I would not recommend it for anybody uh, out there just because that is a, that's an intense thing for Moses right off the bat to do. Uh, but there's a lot of preface that goes into this uh, piece of scripture, and even after the fact, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, as, as Moses uh, retreats up to, well, he, he goes up to Sinai to, to talk to God, uh, he has uh, Aaron left back at the camp. And Aaron seems to be uh, an antagonist in the sense uh, where he listens to these people that have just uh, escaped out of Egypt and has kind of given in to whatever they are asking for, which is making a calf uh, to the gods uh, so they can give uh, kind of uh, homage or praise uh, to this, uh, to be able to get out of Egypt. And so Aaron's like, oh, of course, yeah, for sure we'll do that because Moses isn't here, so why don't we just do whatever you guys want? Uh, even though it's God the whole time leading them out, God the whole time at the forefront. Uh, and you can kind of see this kind of lead this whole storyline of Israel uh, as disobeying God time and time again. This is kind of that forefront kickoff moment where they finally are released from the Egyptians and they get on their own and they instantly screw it up. While God's talking to Moses, they are building calves and praising uh, random gods uh, for saving them uh, in this sense. And Moses uh, is talking to God and God says, hey, go back down there because your people are being crazy. And he's even saying, and even God's red hot with anger. Uh, and then this transference of anger goes to Moses as he sees them doing this, and he breaks the two commandments that he just received. Um, and so it's just a, a crazy occurrence of events as we as we see these people cross a sea and, and get to freedom, even though they're out and about away from everything they have been enslaved into and, and known. They're, they're on their own, and they still choose to do their own thing and to separate themselves from the same God that just saved them. Uh, and Moses is trying to get them, there's this law and establish kind of their newness uh, in this law. And yet the first thing they choose to do is to reject God time and time again. And Aaron seems to be at the forefront of this rejection. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know, Aaron is just an idiot uh, <laughs> because he is just <laughs> looking at everything that has transpired. And, he's, and he still thinks that the people know better than, than, than God. And he, and he, and he dives into it. And it, and it even says at the end of 32, uh, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Uh, so he is now timelessly, uh, induced as the one that has made this calf, uh, as a, as a symbol against God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I was going to say you, I want to deal with a question that you were going to have later. Mm -hmm. Cause your question is, is what about the, killing of all these people that mm -hmm. the Levites had as a result of this. And and the answer is actually in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, 
uh, where Paul says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation uh, will... Uh, he will always also provide a way out so that you may be also able so that you may be able to bear it. He says, flee from idolatry. And that I think that's the essence here is that he did use the Levites and, mm-hmm. and use the children of Israel to really they are carrying out God's judgment against the people. Mm-hmm. And so it is a uh, it is a and he has always done that. He used his people, Israel, to carry out judgment against the nations around them. They, they weren't just going and killing everybody in the land so they could have that property. God was passing judgment on the people in that land and then giving that property to his children and said to them, if you commit the same sins they did, then I will bring somebody else. And he did. He brought the Babylonians in and did the same thing to them that they had done to the people of Canaan. And then brought the Persians in to do the same to the Babylonians and so and so forth and so on. And, and so God is, God is just simply at that time using them as agents of judgment. And the warning is, is that that same God is going to hold us accountable, and it's only because of Christ that we have this moment, this opportunity to turn to the rock, to turn to the bread of life, to mm. to choose this day whom we are going to serve. Yeah. I'm in the same passage. Um, I'm starting with Exodus chapter 31, the last verse in 18. I'm going to read down to verse 35 in chapter 32. So, or I'm sorry, verse 5 <laughs> in chapter 32, but starting in verse... 18 of 31 says this, when the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. Chapter 32, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the gold rings from your ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. And this is a very interesting passage. Um, We've all been talking about it already. But the the thing that's important to understand right now is idolatry. That's what's happening within the people of Israel. But um, to go along with what Jonathan's saying, why were why did they turn away from God? I think that's something that um, we we don't really ever discuss. We just look at it and we say, oh, they turned away from God. Those those idiots. Which is that's true. That's what happened. But it's interesting to ask why. Why did they do that? And it gives us the answer in thirty two chapter or verse one. It says this. Um, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come 
um, they gathered around Aaron and said, come on. And what we're seeing right here is impatience. Um, there is just this longing for something more. And we, um, Jonathan and I were talking about Genesis um, early before we started recording. Um, and, and then Troy was talking about this hunger. Um, and we see Esau, he is impatient. He is hungry and he gives up his birthright. Here's, there's no brain of his thinking. He's not thinking consciously. He's not thinking wisely. He just gives it up because he's hungry. And we kind of see the Israelites doing this here. And as we go through the storyline of the Bible, we see people do this over and over and over again, this impatience leading to idolatry. Um, which is which is really crazy, and, and, and the the rest of this verses two through five are even more interesting because um, because of their impatience, they created a new god. This calf, this uh, cattle within Egypt was viewed as strength. This was the god of strength. It was a um, anyway. So they had created this calf, and then what did the Israelites say? They say um, that Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This strength, this calf has brought us out of Egypt. And then um, Aaron says something super interesting at the end of chapter or verse five. It says, "Tomorrow we will be uh, there will be a festival to the Lord." And if you look in your Bibles, what you should see is that "Lord" is in all caps. And so what's happening here is, is if you look into the original language, they call this calf Jehovah. Um, so this golden calf, which by the way. What is the calf made out of? Gold from the plunder that mm. God had given to the Egyptians. Right. And so the blessing that God had blessed them with, all of this gold, all of this riches that they all escaped out of Egypt with, they took off, they melted down, and then began to praise the blessing that the Lord has given them. Mm. And then they call it Jehovah. These people, Aaron, Aaron himself was looking at this golden calf and calling it Jehovah, mm. Yahweh. He was calling it Lord. And that is crazy and so we see this impatience of just unknown just mega impatience lead to idolatry in such a way that they are calling the blessing of god this gold jehovah they're calling it i am who i am and that is absolutely wild yeah i i really am i get really uneasy when people um have a picture of jesus or something and they set it up in such a way in which it'll be at an altar where they go and pray to. And it's like, that is not, I mean, he, he says do not create. Mm -hmm. And some people say, well, it's not a graven image. It's like, but it is a, it is something that is made, it's prepared in, in an object of worship. He doesn't, he, at the minimum, God does not like that. Right. It's like, and he makes it so clear to us. We're just drawn back into that. We always Mm -hmm. are looking for something to look at or to point at, whether it be the sun or whether it be, uh, issue in son, whether it be some type of picture or image or or a cross, even the cross can become that for us. If you if you have a cross, I mean, it's one thing to have a cross in a worship place where it just is a reminder of Christ and so forth. It's another thing to put it as an object of worship to say, I want to be facing the cross when I pray, or I've got to touch the cross or whatever. You you are you're ascribing some type of holiness to that, some type mm-hmm. of a power to it that does not possess and god is the un, i mean he is the untouchable god he is that uh that type of uh, he, he's unseen he's holy created he's yeah. holy yeah and and he's spirit and mm-hmm. so it's not it's he says i do i don't want you anything you create like that is not if if, if you call it so well up yeah but it is i'm still praying to god it's like yeah but that's not me you know mm-hmm. so don't pray to that and and so we just you know I I know that kind of 
tramples on people and they're like, well, I don't really, but it's like, that's whatever you're saying, <laughs> you know, whatever excuses we make for that, uh, you just go back to, this is not about a, I'm this denomination or I come from that. That's just a very basic thing that God has These communicated. Ten commandments. The yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the Sabbath is another thing that yeah, we, that we absolutely. trounce on and, <laughs> so often. And it is just grace that God gives us and mm-hmm. allowing us to not be killed as mm-hmm. a result of it. Right. But it is, uh, if we're trying to seek the way to please him, those are things that are important to bring to the forefront. And I think even our impatience in, uh, I think it all just goes back to being impatient. Uh, just when the sense of waiting for Jesus' return, that's why we maybe make those scenes and those images, uh, because we want to have something right now with us in that we don't want to wait for him to return and to see him then. We want to see him right now on earth. And and you see it right here with uh, these Israelites. They are impatient for Moses, and so they and it just leads to disobedience. All this impatience just leads into disobedience, and there's nothing else that it goes to. And so disobedience is a separation. It's, it's disobeying God, and so we see it. Uh, these supernatural events happen, and and God is above time, and so whenever we're constructed to time, and we're and we're bound to time, we get impatient, and that's where we see ourselves through disobedience. If we are patient, we do see that obedience time and time again in the Bible. But in this, with the Israelites, their whole focus seems to be to be impatient and not to wait on God's timing, but to do it themselves, which leads to disobedience, and and then that disobedience leads to that punishment, uh, whether it be for their people or for people around. Uh, but it just, uh, it seems like they don't ever understand the concept of patience and neither yeah. do we sometimes. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to look at G, uh, Matthew chapter 26 and, and just read just, uh, some verses from it because it's, it's, there's a lot happening here, but it's, it's G, Jesus, uh, it says, um, uh, it says in Matthew 26:14. it says, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, um, he sought opportunity to betray him. Um, and then G- Jesus, when he's having the, the supper with his disciples, he had, uh, says, he, he says, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born and then uh, the disciples, he takes the disciples out to the garden and he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time he went and prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and elders of the people. And, and here you have three very different sections of people. We really These are the three categories. We fall into two categories, and a third category we, we don't fall into because it's Jesus. I'll just give you that heads up ahead of time. But, but Judas had a demon, the word says. He had a demon, but he was still culpable for his actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not come to Jesus and ask for deliverance. He he just persevered in that demonic uh, influence. Uh, he was because he had his own desires. He had these desires. He was a zealot. He had a desire to see Israel gain victory over the Romans, and he saw Jesus as the avenue for that. And and it, it, I think of so many people who are in church. 
who are in church because it is the path or the avenue that they believe is necessary to get what they want out of life. It's like this this means to my end, it's what I desire and so forth. You are a Judas Iscariot. If you're going to church because you believe it's going to help you accomplish your own end, then that is exactly what Judas did. And we make him out to be so evil and and horrible, but that is, there are a lot of people in the church. Billy Graham used to say that it was 80% of the church that was the case. And and who knows, it could be, uh, because Jesus is actually looking for disciples, people who are following him to accomplish his will and his purpose. And so once he reveals, this is my purpose and plan, um, then if it's not your purpose and plan, then you betray him uh, and you seek to go against him. And then you have the disciples who are like following him, but they're just, uh, so Satan can't, they're too close to Jesus for Satan mm, to get to. So what he yeah. has to do is lull them to sleep. And so then you have this other group of failure. I guess, I guess we could fall into either, any of these three groups, but the, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But the, uh, so then, so you have those who are not following Christ and who are demonically controlled. And then you have those who are too close to Jesus to be demonically controlled, but they can be lulled to sleep and just inactive, not doing and fall into temptation. Um, and then you have the third group, which is Christ represents. And and when we are and, and you see Christ does this is what God wants from us is to simply be actively watching but willing to do whatever it is God wants us to do. And and Jesus is praying, but the prayers are not getting him a different answer. The prayers are just giving him the strength to do that which mm-hmm. the Father has given him to do. And and it's so uh, it shows us that the series of events is happening to all of them. And and Judas winds up hanging himself in despair. You know, if he even at that moment, if he had gone back to Christ, Jesus would have forgave him for the betrayal. Uh, it, it showed that with Peter, uh, but uh, but he didn't. He 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 took uh, and and this is what Satan ultimately does. He destroys his pawns. You know, it, I've heard people say, "I wish I could go back in time and take Judas out of the picture." If it wasn't Judas Iscariot, it would have been somebody else, mm-hmm. because Satan always finds a pawn to do his work, to do what he wants to do. Uh, and God always has a plan for that pawn of Satan mm. to accomplish what he wants and his ultimate ends. And so uh, because Satan is, uh, while Satan has pawns who are men, Satan is a pawn of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's and it's always important for us to remember that God ultimately is going to accomplish his will. Even if we're asleep, God's will is still being done. Mm-hmm. God is still carrying out everything he wants to do, even though Peter, James, and John fell asleep. It weren't where they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. God still accomplishes his purpose. It's just they missed the opportunity to be mm-hmm. a part of that plan. And kind of leading into uh, my second piece of scripture uh, as a correlation with that, and it is uh, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 45 um, uh, through 51. And this is the parable of the two servants. It says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at this, at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this parable is described uh, in several different ways thereafter. Uh, in chapters 25, um, and this is just uh, such a simple example of um, of these two servants that uh, this master has 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 left his property to, uh, and who have worked for him, and who are 
uh, probably undeserving of anything anyway, and that's why they're in the servant category. Uh, they are working for this master, and he departs to go away uh, to do whatever business he has. And as he leaves, he sees uh, these, these two representations of people. And this first representation is this faithful servant who will work while the master is gone. He does not know when the master is going to return. He has no idea, but he's just going to persistently work and do the work the master has asked him to do. And he even says that he does more so of the work. He doesn't even, he's not even doing the normal amount. He's actually going above and beyond whatever the master has instructed. And he goes above and beyond while he is gone because he wants to be conscientious of making sure that he is completing the work the master has set out for him. But then we see in the complete antagonizing way, this second servant uh, who is this foolish and wicked servant uh, who decides to just do whatever he wants. He sees the master depart. He says, my master's delayed. That means I can do whatever I want and basically flips the switch and ends up eating and drinking with the drunkards and ends up beating some of the other servants uh, because he does not know uh, when that master will return. And so as we see these two separate servants, uh, we can kind of correlate it to Jesus' parable in the way that he taught of saying, this is me. God is the master and he will send his son to return at a time we do not expect. It even says in the in the verses before, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so that's where we have to find ourselves. Is Are we going to be this faithful servant or the, the wicked servant in the ways of what are we doing in the times of waiting for Jesus' return? Are we, are, we, are we living for ourselves? Are we going to live for what the Master has planned for us, what Jesus has planned for us, what God has set out and said, hey, are you are you making fruit? Are you are you are you living out the way that I want you to live? Are you living in an act of obedience, or are you living for yourself? And it says the rewards uh, of of each servant as well. And it even says that this faithful servant is going to receive the possessions that this master has. It's going to say that he received a hundredfold, and just and just go over abundance of of possessions that this this servant, this lowly person, will receive because he was faithful in that. But likewise, we see this wicked servant receiving the same punishment in the negative connotation of saying he's going to not only die physically, but he's going to join the hypocrites uh, in an eternal punishment of hell. And so I love that Jesus' parable just uh, it sticks out and he, and he relates the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents to relay the same message uh, in, the, in the way of we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And like he was saying, are you going to choose for living for Christ or are you going to choose to live in your own ways of disobedience? And as we get impatient, and I love that reflection of Moses and his own story of he is gone to talk to God on Mount Sinai. And these impatient people are like, oh, he's, he's delayed. He's not coming back. What's going on with Moses? What's, what's happening? And they decide to just do their own thing. And so I love that we see this whole different story in the New Testament, and it shows the same comparison, uh, but on a broader scale saying, Jesus will return. This new law now that is formed through Jesus, he will return. And are you going to be found being faithful or are you going to be found building a calf for your own gods and your own mm-hmm. things? Are you going to yeah. be found doing your own work because you think that you got this made for yourself using your own ideals? Hmm. That's cool. That's good. Yeah. Um, I'm in Proverbs chapter seven for my uh, final devotion and Proverbs seven is unlike the rest of the book. It's kind of similar to Proverbs 31 and that mm. it tells a continual story within one chapter. Usually in the book of Proverbs, it's, um, here's a proverb, and here's a proverb, and here's a proverb, and it's verse by verse, a different little thing of wisdom. But in Proverbs chapter 7, it, it covers this um, story of a young man 
um, being seduced by an immoral woman. And this is very interesting because it gives us, there's, there's two things to notice here. Number one, sexual sin is bad. That's the like generic, like, oh, that's exactly what it's saying. But there's also something interesting as I was reading it today of like, wait a minute, this immoral woman is also just representing sin itself. Mm. Um, and so uh, in, in verse one, the writer says, follow my advice, my son, always treasure my commands, obey my commands and live. Guard my instructions as your, um, yeah, guard my instructions as your guard, your own eyes, tie them to your fingers as a reminder, write them deep within your heart. And it speaks of wisdom, the importance of wisdom. And then he speaks about um, the dangers of not having wisdom. Um, and it's this, I mean, it's a, I don't want to say beautiful picture of sin because that's not, it's a very detailed um, and uh, accurate description of what sin is. And so I'm just going to start in verse 12, and it says that she is often in the streets and markets, soliciting at every corner. She threw her arms around him and kissed him, and with a brazen look, she said, I've just made my peace offerings and fulfilled my vows. You're the one I was looking for. I came out to find you, and here you are. My bed is spread with beautiful blankets, with colored sheets of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Let's enjoy each other's caresses, for my husband is not home. He's away on a long trip. He has taken a wallet full of money with him and won't, won't return until later this month. So she seduced, she seduced him with her pretty speech and enticed him with her flattery. And as you break down this passage, we see sin enticing us um, in every single way. Number one, she's often in the streets and markets soliciting every corner. Sin is everywhere. And it reminds me of the passage in the beginning of Genesis where sin is crouching at the door continually. And then it goes on further um, in verse 15. You're the one I was looking for. I came out to find you and here you are. Sin affirms us. And then we go into verse 17. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. It gives us a sense of luxury. And then you keep going in verse 18. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us enjoy each other's caresses. Blah, blah, blah. It offer it offers us physical pleasure. And then this last part, verse 20, he has um, taken a wallet full of money with him and he won't return until later this month. And then sin offers us secrecy um, from everybody and from God. And um, it's just very interesting to see what, what sin does. And so sin entices us in every part of us. And if we have no wisdom, sin is inevitable. We will fall into that. We will be seduced just like Eve was, just like I mean, we can go through the whole storyline of the Bible and see how sin has seduced every person um, because it messes with every single one of our senses. It messes with our heart, with our soul, with our right. mind, and with our strength. And if we do not have the wisdom of God tied around to remember, tied around our fingers to remind us of who he is, then we're going to fall just like this young man. Um, and it goes on to finish the whole chapter as it's speaking about this woman. But again, reminder, this, this sin, it says this, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is the road to the grave. Her bedroom is the den of death. And that's the real description of what sin is at the Mm. end. It gives us all this luxury. It affirms us. It gives us physical pleasure. It gives us secrecy away from God. But at the end, as you read um, chapter 7, it tells us that her bedroom is the den of death. And that's where sin lies. It's always crouching at the door. It's yeah. everywhere. And that's that's where it is. And so reading Proverbs 7, the point of it is, yes, yes, sexual sin is so bad, but the, the, the more important part is the wisdom of God is is beyond mm. belief and it protects us from death. Um, and that, that sin, all it has to offer uh, is death. And that, I mean, really, really pounced on me this week yeah. as I was, as I was studying. She that. loves Lair. 
What? Exactly. The spider. Oh. And the Lord of the Rings, yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't get Sorry. that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. She Loves Lair is one of the scariest parts of Lord of the Rings because it's a, she's a giant spider, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it, it, so you're lured inside, and then you yeah. get caught in the web, and then you become her prey. Oh, and, you know, uh, I have, I've seen that part of Lord yeah. of the Rings. Yeah, it's terrifying. <gasps> it, it is very it is, scary. It is extremely – because you, you once you're in, mm-hmm. you just can't find your way out, mm-hmm. and, and she lures you in. Yep. And, and that is uh, – that's why it, the wisdom is – See it mm-hmm. and run from it. Yeah. Do not do not get entangled mm-hmm. in it because once you go in there, it's there's no coming very, out. Yeah. And that's yeah. and that's and that's where that's drawn from actually that passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that uh, the Tolkien example. Uh, but the uh, that is uh, yeah terrifying. Terrifying should be terrifying. But I think it, I think it it goes in that you should reassure not reassure people but you should warn people that all the things that it it, it provides or says it provides a secrecy and pleasure mm-hmm. that it's all a false sense of that it, yeah, it's yeah. never a real it's sense a of pleasure it's or a, never a real mm-hmm. sense of yeah. secrecy because god has overcome sin yeah. and it's just that there will never be a sense of secrecy in sin because if right. you are the light of the world there's yeah. no way you can hide from well, the light just of the think world. about in genesis when adam and eve sin immediately what they do is they hide themselves they yeah. try to find secrecy away from the lord and I mean, we, I mean, we do that all. I mean, when um, Cain killed Abel, he hid from he hid from him, and and we do that so often. And so sin, although it looks luxurious and it gives you physical pleasure and it and it does all this stuff, God says, I mean, if, if we were, I was reading in Matthew and it's talking about um, when you are following him, the the manifold of ple- blessing and pleasure, all of this that it will give you. Uh, why would you? just want Egyptian threads and colors like yeah. when God has so much more yeah. and this passage really, I mean, it wakes you up to that. And the enemy, what he does is he's, once you have fallen into that, he, his goal is to keep you there. That mm-hmm. uh, if he, he t- tells you, if you go into the light, everybody will see, you'll be guilty, you'll be dead, you'll be killed. And, um, and that's, that's really where, uh, so we stay in the darkness thinking mm-hmm. it's better. And I hear that so often. God doesn't want me, or I'm, you know, I, I'm better off in the dark, or I can't stand to come into the light, basically, because I've people will see who I am, what I am, and, and and really, there comes a point where you have to decide: I would rather die to myself and and, and receive what God has to give mm-hmm. than stay here in the darkness and die alone in the dark. And yeah, um, but that's that's the the beautiful picture of God's grace coming into that is that people who have stepped into that place that yeah, the the course is death, but not not eternal death because Jesus has paid the price for that and Jesus is the one who stepped into your place and took that death sentence for you um it's a beautiful picture of the gospel well mm-hmm. we're going to deal with some questions when we return so stay right here welcome back and we are going to cover our you hate it when I say welcome back. I know. I I'm know because you say it I every know. single time we hit record. I know. I'm so sorry, but we are. <laughs> That's okay. Our, this is our question. We are back. Time. We are back, and, and it is time to answer <laughs> some questions. So I'm excited about the opportunity to answer questions, mm-hmm. Lord willing. Yeah. So, so we start with one from a listener. Yeah, yeah. Um. Last week, if you watch our podcast or listen to it, um, Judy was on, and she had a question today as well. In our reading of Exodus, what we were discussing earlier, um, when we see um, God's anger burning hot. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Moses go to the Lord and plead for Israel. And then it says a little bit um, further down in the passage 
God changed his mind. And so the yeah. question is, did Moses change God's mind? And can God change his mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, yeah, it's been asked quite a few times yeah. over the years. But um, it is, there's this picture when you read that passage, it's kind of like Moses is like, uh, it, it's kind of like my relationship with my wife. Your father wanted to kill you, but I intervened <laughs> and convinced him not to die. Actually, it reminds me of an actual conversation with my mom and dad. Your dad wanted to kill you for failing algebra, but I talked him out of it. So anyway, so I hope you appreciate me uh, saving you. Uh, but what's uh, that's kind of the picture we get when we read Moses. But there, there's one thing, and we talked about this before. They're called anthropomorphisms and uh, personification. It's when you give attributes of men to God just because that's the understanding we have of what is taking place. When we're looking at God, we we there are things that are revealed. We take into into understanding the whole counsel of scripture. And when you look at the whole counsel of scripture, a trait of God is immutability. And what that means, he's unchanging. He never changes. So no, God cannot literally change his mind uh because he is an unchanging God. Um but when we are looking at it from our perspective, it would look as though God is going to do one thing and then he relents and it looks. And so when he relents and does something different than what he said he was going to do, then it looks like he has changed his mind. Mm-hmm. But really, everything he has put into place is to affect his will. It's kind of like prayer when he says his our prayers are effective. So what he's saying is, is that I I have a plan to do this. But I am not going to do it until you do this. Well, it looks as though we are then changing God or changing the direction he would go, that he would he was going to do this, but then we prayed and then he did something different. But the truth behind that is, is that he, that was always part of his plan, to raise up someone to intercede, and therefore now I'm going to carry out my will and my purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does with Moses. He, he's, he has a plan to uh, save Israel. But uh, so he's got wrath stored up. He's going to pour his wrath on Israel, but he raises Moses up as an intercessor. Mm -hmm. And then Moses intervenes and then God then responds to his prayers. I I used to use an illustration like with my dad or grandfather or whatever. Grandfather is what I mostly think of when I would drive his tractor. And uh, and he would uh, I was four years old and I'd be sitting on his lap and he said, do you want to drive? And I'd be like, absolutely. (laughs) And so I got my hands on the steering wheel or whatever. Something I realized now but didn't really pay attention to then is his hand was always on that wheel at the bottom. You know, and so it looks like I'm turning it Mm -hmm. and so forth. He even let me run over a few strawberries uh, plants for, uh, you know, from time to time, go off the path or whatever. But he would just kind of auto, you know, correct it back to where he needed to be. And and what he was doing was he was it was just a relationship where he was allowing me to participate mm-hmm. in something he could have done without me. Mm-hmm. He didn't need me to drive the tractor. He just involved me in driving tractor, which which gave me a sense of purpose and and but uh, and fulfillment, mm-hmm. but also bonded the two of us together. Mm-hmm. And that's what God is doing. He's he, he can run this universe without mm-hmm. us. He could have resolved this without Moses inter, interceding. But he wanted to involve Moses in that plan because he loved Moses and mm-hmm. and thought very highly of Moses, uh, and so he's incorporating Moses into his plan. And uh, and and that's the cool, cool part about mm-hmm. us today is he incorporates us into his plan. That our prayers really are effective when you intercede for that friend. God is putting it upon your heart to intercede, and you are. And he says that prayer is effective. It actually mm-hmm. is making something happen because God has incorporated that into his tapestry of the universe yeah and i think it's important listeners to realize and we always have to remind ourselves of this as well 
is that um, the people who wrote the Bible were people as well, and they have a limited brain just as much as we do. Um, and even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have limited words because words are limited. But what the the Bible is doing is an explain is explaining an unlimited, unlike anything else, God. And so when we have words like God changes his mind, that's what our brain can grasp. Um, but that's as far as it can grasp, because like we said, he's immutable. His mind doesn't change, but right. that's what we can understand about it. Um, and so sometimes the words, um, they just don't translate well into our understanding of God. So we project human qualities on a non-human, unlike anything else, holy God. Yeah. And that's where this confusion can set in. Yeah. So Jonathan, you had a question next. Yeah, mine's multifaceted uh, in the sense of um, I'll ask lots of parts and we'll just answer a couple and see what we can answer. <laughs> okay. uh, it is, there is a large description in Exodus uh, of certain things that are built uh, and they, they go through a detailed process of through the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacles to different, uh, to what priests should wear and all sorts of different descriptions. Uh, and we see a description even with Noah's Ark being built. Uh, and my question is, um, what is the significance of those details in those descriptions, uh, and and why are they not uh, given to some other things that are built uh, throughout the Bible uh, in in that way, and why uh, why are those not as significant? Um, maybe in, even with the building of the wall again, uh, that ne- it's the Nehemiah. Why do they not talk about the the very detailed detailed descriptions of those in certain aspects, uh, and just go through the gate terms and. and and then why in the New Testament is there not more descriptions of, of buildings being built? Uh, what are the significance of those items? Yeah, the, um, there is another detailed description of the temple in, in um, Ezekiel uh, where he goes through, and, mm-hmm. and there is never a temple built um, like that. And so some people believe that that is going to be the rebuilt temple uh, in, the, um, in the millennial reign of Christ. Um, I, I tend to believe that, that, is, that it, the temple that Ezekiel is describing is the temple that Zerubbabel was supposed to build but did not build because of his own uh, failure. But, uh, but whatever the case, uh, it is a uh, that is a, another place of, of great detail. Um, you have um, uh, some other places in, uh, I'm just trying to think of, uh, in Revelation. Um, in Revelation, you have a lot of details about specific things and, and, and the dimensions that, uh, that, Paul, uh, that John is seeing in his vision and so forth. Um, the the point is is that you have a uh, the the significance of Noah's ark for instance is that uh God is Noah's never built an ark and God has a specific plan that he's going to do and if you want to think of it every time that God comes into uh our world and says I need you to do something um he gives very specific instructions on how that mm-hmm. is supposed to be done um, and the law well, in itself, not it wasn't just the tabernacle; it was it was the law itself. I'm giving you very exact prescription for mm-hmm. how I want everything to be done and how I want you to do this to me, so that there is no room for confusion or error. Um, where the Pharisees went off base, and 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 there were a lot of people that went off base leading up to that, um, is they added so many. They would go from that and say, oh well. How do we, so we can't work on the Sabbath. Well, let's define what work is. And so you come up with hundreds of laws to, to say, here's how we define what work is and what work is and so forth. Taking the scripture and then making, you know, specifically, mm-hmm. this is yeah. how many steps you can take and this is, and you can do this and you can't do that and so forth. 
and Jesus, so when Jesus came, he was like, all right, all right, all right. I, I appreciate your, your efforts here, mm-hmm. but let me draw you back to what my father actually said and, and specifically what he was looking for. And, and this part is fulfilled and this part, and, and these are all things that are pointing to something that, uh, that I want you to know and understand. Um, and, and, and God is a, a God of detail and, and efforts, but, but really after the law was given, after the temple uh, was built um, and, uh, and, and so they had all these guidelines they followed for the tabernacle, um, there wasn't anything to be built after that. That's why you don't have specific instructions in the New Testament for anything because he says, my God dwells in a temple not made with hands. Um, and Jesus is the, I mean, you don't, you don't need the description of anything because Jesus is the, the, the revelation. Um, you have, you have God revealing here, here are the plans I want. And I'm giving you specific things because you are, you are finite people with finite minds. And so I have to give you these guidelines and directions and so forth. Like when he met with Gideon, he gave him very specific, here's what I want you to do. And here's how I want to do. And then, and then Gideon gathers an army together and God says, no, this army's too big. I need you to do this to kind of weed out some people. And he keeps doing that until he gets, oh, this is exact. Okay. This is what I want. This is how I want you to do this. And he tells him what to do, and Gideon does that, and God brings about his will. So, uh, so yeah, he, he does continue to interact with us in a specific way. Uh, but once Jesus comes, then Jesus says, okay, here's, here's what I want you to understand. I want you to love people as I love you. And so I'm going to demonstrate how I love you and reveal that through the things I say to you. And now I want you to go and do that. And so the questions that people would ask all revolve around that. So they come back to him and say, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, let me describe to you who your neighbor is. So he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so he's describing, this is the type of love that I have for you. He, you know, when he says, when, we're, when he gathers together all the people, his sheep and the goats, he says, uh, here's how uh, you have this one group of people who uh, loved uh, me when I was hungry, who fed me when I was hungry, who gave me drink when I was thirsty, when I was naked, they clothed me, when I was sick, you visited me and took care of me. And he's saying that this is how. I love, and when you do it to the least of these, you are showing love for me. So he's he's teaching how to fulfill the one command that he says is essential for us to follow, and that is to love other people as he has loved us. And and that is uh, so. The specifics of the New Testament all revolve around that one one theme over and over and over again. He's teaching us how to love others. Hmm. Yeah. So the final question is from the beginning of our reading of this week. It's in Matthew uh, twenty three. Um, and something that is happening within this passage is Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. And something that he continues to say is blind guides. And he's speaking of the Pharisees and how they're leading people blindly, but they're blind themselves. And then um, uh, scattered throughout, he calls them a brood of vipers. Um, and so my question is, in a world, um, I don't want to say very similar, but we have a lot of false teachers right. around us. And a lot of people, like what we, we were talking about earlier with what Billy and Graham said, 80% of people in the church are, are in this sort of category. Mm-hmm. How do we um, keep an eye out for these blind guides or this brood of vipers? Mm. Well, Jesus explains that himself. He says that uh, it, is the, it is those who think they can see who are blind. It is those who know that they are blind who are made to see. And so it all begins with just humbling ourselves before the Lord. Anytime you find yourself in a place of thinking, I know I've figured this out or I know where I'm going or I know what I'm doing and, and now I'm good, um, then you're in a very dangerous place 
whenever you think that you have this wisdom or this knowledge or this understanding and you're like, oh, I'm, I've, I've got, oh, wow, I can't believe how much I know or I understand or I, it's all so clear to me and I've got it. And then you're in a really dangerous place because um, Jesus is the one who brings us sight. He's the one who gives us this. And it is never something we are not dependent upon. It is never something that we, that we grow past. Uh, for we are constantly in a, we constantly have a need for him. There's this very, when we say we are born in original sin, uh, we are born with a propensity. Uh, the sinfulness is to walk without God. Mm-hmm. And, and so and, and we're, if you ever see a child, a, a toddler, when a parent will reach to help and they will push the parent's hand away and, and they do not want you to touch them, they do not want you to help them, that, that is that original sin in that child. And we grow up with that, and we value that, and we s and we and we highlight that. If you look at the world, the world is all about figuring out how to do this on my own and personal achievement and and self glorification, meaning achieve being all that I can be. I can remember a guy in a message, one of the first messages I preached when I was looking at my first church. I said, you know, the slogan "Be all you can be" is is completely antichrist. And, uh, and he was very upset over that. He was a military person. And, uh, so (laughs) he's like, you know, I think we should be all that we can be. And I said, no, we should be all that God wants us to be or God, all that God makes us to be, uh, because that's how he gets the glory. So the only solution is to understand we are blind except for what Christ reveals to us. And I don't have anything unless Jesus reveals it, unless Jesus shows me, unless Jesus makes me. And I, and I wake up each day humble before him and saying, God, without you or apart from you, I can see nothing. I can know nothing. I can do nothing. I have to have you. You are essential to me and to my understanding today. And so I must walk in total obedience to you because if I don't walk in obedience, then I've given Satan a foothold. I've given him the ability to deceive me, to to lead me astray, to take me in a different direction. And, and so that's why you are constantly looking and making sure, you know, where am I in proximity to Christ right now? And Satan is constantly saying, I, I, here, step away from him for a second, or just do this. He won't mind. He, if you just leave him for a second, he won't mind if you do this. But that's what he's just looking to get you, just a little bit of a wedge between you and the Father so that he can lead you off into the path. And, and at some point, God then pours, you know, scourging upon us to say, wake up, you're too far away, come yeah. back over here, and so forth. It really is a parent-child relationship. He's screaming at you, going, Josh, you're you're too far away, you know, come back over here, mm-hmm. you know, and if and depending on what Satan's got going on over here, it's like, oh, just a second, oh, yeah. you know, whatever. And uh, but that is uh, but that is where the blind guides are in that they they think they know where they're going. They've uh, it's like I don't I don't need the church, uh, I don't. I, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it's every time you think, I don't need to hear that message. I don't need to hear that sermon. I don't need to be a part of a Bible study. I don't need to be discipled. Uh, what is that? That is the blindness in you who is thinking, I, can, I know so much, you know. And what you're saying is, I know more than he does or yeah. she does. But that's, doesn't, that's irrelevant mm-hmm. because what really matters is, do you know what, not just what God knows, but do you know what God wants you to know? and and what he is revealing today um and it's a great way to wrap this podcast up the point of the understanding jesus podcast is to show the value of coming to god on a daily basis in his word 
and asking, God, reveal me, show me what you want me to know today. And when you do that every day, you'll realize he reveals something about himself every day. So on the day when you didn't come to him, there was something that you were supposed to know that you didn't know. You walked blindly through the day because you didn't get that revelation. You didn't have that time where God says, hey, you need to hear this or know this or understand this. And and you don't have to. Sometimes life gets busy or crazy, but when it does, he finds other ways to inject his word into our day. Uh, it, but it needs to be something like a craving. It needs to be something like, I mean, if you have that morning cup of coffee, it's like, I can't live without that morning cup of coffee, or I can't live without this food or whatever you think of. And and we find, have you ever gone without food? And you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Where you wake up and you didn't eat breakfast, you miss it and you miss lunch, mm-hmm. and then you start really seeking food out. That is the way we need to crave the word of God. We need to say, I, I haven't had a time to get, I'm, I'm walking to this day, but I'm not sure I know what God is thinking, or I haven't had that moment to commune with him or to, to read his word and spend time with him and, and to really get my bearing straight. And so it's like, at some point you're like, you know, just, everybody just leave me alone. I got to get, I got to get with God and get things uh, squared away. Uh, otherwise we are, we are blind guides mm-hmm. and we are, and then when we are the blind leading the blind is when we have not had that time with the Lord and now we're giving instruction to other people mm-hmm. and we're speaking out of our own ignorance. And now they're like, they're looking at you thinking, oh, well, he must know what he's talking about because he's mm-hmm. a Christian preacher or whatever. And that's why God holds us to that high level of accountability. And then, oh my goodness, there's so much regret I have where I look back and I think, oh my goodness, I, I was sharing with those people. It's one of the reasons I came home. I was in the Northwest and I was pastoring a church and um, I had this couple that was went to a Bible college and and they would ask me after a sermon, they were like, that was a really interesting take you had on what the Bible said. And uh, I really felt I was super knowledgeable about the Bible. And I would hear an incredible sermon or I'd hear something and I would just be sharing something I'd heard and, you know, added my own flavor to it. And uh, and they would be like, that's really incredible. I never heard that before. And I said, so this is what you believe? And they weren't being mean or anything. They were just asking, so is this what you believe? And I'd be like, yeah, that's what I believe. And I would hear it and I'd be like, is that what I believe? Mm. I haven't really, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's what I believe. And I go back and look at it and go, and I, I would read somebody else's perspective because then you start reading different books and so forth and going, oh my gosh, well, maybe I believe this or maybe I believe this. And then you realize what it means when he says we're carried about on all these different winds mm. of doctrine. And I was like, I've never taken the time to really, really study and understand what God, so I, so I moved home and went to seminary and it wasn't that seminary was important. It was the discipline of being alone with God and being in his word and studying his word on a regular basis uh, and and realizing that I had been preaching and teaching things that I wasn't sure. There was a lot of grace. I go back and listen to old sermons and I was like, oh, yeah, that was that was on. That was OK, because I was afraid. I was like, what? how much heresy have I taught over the years? But the only reason I was spot on is because I was following. I was just repeating something someone who was solid was saying. Um, but every time I went off cuff, every time I kind of went off, it was like, oh, it's just stupid. Mm-hmm. That's not even close yeah. for it to write. Um, and it was my first class in seminary. I remember one of my first classes. I can remember saying, uh, well, couldn't it mean this? And the professor walked over to my desk and he was like, no, <laughs> it cannot mean that. <laughs> and then began to tell me why it couldn't mean that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I have no idea what I'm talking gotcha. about. I am so stupid. And, uh, and, but then, but, uh, but I was, but somebody, it was God turning the light on for me. 
mm-hmm. and I was beginning to see things clearly for the first time and understanding um, that uh, it's like somebody says when you um, you don't sometimes you don't know what you don't know and that was what uh, what seminary helped me with I didn't even know what I didn't know um, and now that's now that that's you know it's entrusted to me uh, to study and to learn and so forth. And I take that very seriously to so that I have and understand what God is actually revealing. So I'm not teaching what I think. I'm teaching what God's word reveals. And and so being very careful to say that's what it is. So when we're reading the word together, we're saying, here's what I believe God is revealing, but we're but we're being careful to examine those things as well as we share. So so if you know, if Josh or Jonathan says something really off base, I, I want to be here to go. That's just crazy. <laughs> you know, but uh, but anyway. So anyway, good question. Yeah, big long answer. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. Thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Yeah, come back anytime. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. All right. Thank you for being with us today on the Understanding Jesus podcast.